0: And welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Mark Gregory, Charlie Winfield. Getting ready to shelter in place right now. Got a good show for you tonight. Man, i tell you what. We've had some really good guests over the last couple of weeks. Charlie, I thought when baseball season ended, I really didn't know what to think about the show, man. But i tell you what. We, we've gone to two interviews during the show. We've had a doctor on. We've had a songwriter on. We're going to have a banker on later in the show tonight. Barry Winford played at Mississippi State. And then you start looking at, you know, of course, Jay Powell and Eric DeBose and Mitch Moreland and Buck Showalter. Then last week we had Ben McDonald.
1: Tonight we've got Kyle Peterson on the show. And we had Bo McInnis, one of the top agents in baseball. So we've... We've had some really good guests. It's been a lot of fun, and it should be a great show
0: for you tonight. Now, the thing about uh, what happened this past Monday that changed really the landscape of college baseball, and of course we're presented by Farm Bureau, go with a home team and go to favorites.com. You can use that app. You can go to the Farm Bureau mobile app, and you can do everything you can file a claim, you can pay your bill, you can do everything you need to do. You can actually talk to agents online with that Farm Bureau app, and so that Farm Bureau mobile app. And so use that. That's the easiest way to do things right now with a lot of offices being closed and you know, you, people don't want to get out. So just make sure you use that uh, mobile app now if you are a Farm Bureau customer. And if you're not a Farm Bureau customer, check them out, get some great rates at favorites. I'm Bart Gregory. He's Charlie Winfield. Charlie, on Monday, the NCAA Division I Council kind of surprised us all, and we really didn't know what to expect as far as eligibility for last year's seniors. They came out and hinted early on that you may see that uh, extra year granted for seniors, but lo and behold, they come back and they grant that eligibility for everyone involved, and that was really a surprise. And it's going
1: to be one of the first times that I've seen the NCAA make a decision that was purely for the benefit of the student athlete. In terms of a competitive balance, in terms of parity, this will cause some difficulties, but it is good for the individual student-athletes, and that's what you like to see.
0: And the thing it will do along those lines is it's going to cost some money. It's going to cost some schools who are not normally paying a lot of money into college baseball at some smaller conferences. It is going to force people to use some allocated dollars they're not used to allocating in years to come. Now, first and foremost, it was a blanket as far as allowing everyone to have an extra year in all spring sports, whether that be baseball, softball, and track and field. So what that means are several different things. Okay, you look at a Jordan Westberg, a Justin Foscue, a Tanner Allen, a Josh Hatcher, those are the guys that we had talked, to a good, talked about a good bit over the last couple of weeks. So they will come back as juniors. Now, technically, they still have the opportunity of going into the Major League Draft, but now Major League Baseball has come back and said, we want to hold the draft to possibly five rounds. So that changes things as well. Here's the thing that's real great, and when you look at the the seniors on a team, whether it be a graduate transfer or a senior, Mississippi State didn't have
1: a whole lot of those. No, they did not. If you look at graduates or seniors on the team for Mississippi State, just five. Take Alabama, meanwhile, they've got nine. Take TCU to step outside the SEC. TCU had nine seniors on their roster. Five of them were fifth-year seniors. Only think about the guys they're going to possibly have coming back. And the thing about those
0: guys coming back is they do not count toward your limits. They don't count toward your 35. They don't count toward your 117 Now, the thing that's interesting is if you have graduate transfers, if you have a guy that, say, leaves Arkansas to go to Texas Tech, okay, and he's a graduate transfer, and as a senior at Arkansas, he got 30% scholarship, and that's what a lot of these guys are getting. And if he goes to Texas Tech, he can only max out at 30% at Texas Tech. That cannot go higher unless they can use more money, but they do count toward the 11.7 at that time. So there are going to be some roster management issues. I mean, when you start looking around the country and you start talking about you know junior college guys coming to campus, about high school seniors coming to campus, the thing about junior college guys is also a caveat – is now they can make the transfer. They come in technically as a junior like they normally would, but the NCAA has said you can come back and try to get that year retroactively back. They have to file a waiver, which they're going to get those waivers. So essentially all your junior college guys are going to come in as sophomores. And you talk about roster management issues, hey, this is a great deal. You can't complain about this at all. This is, like you said, the best thing possible for student athletes. But when you start trying to figure out – I want to play my best 10, 11 guys over, you know, a a 56-game season. It's going to be very interesting to see how some of these coaches manage these big
1: rosters. It is, and it's going to be interesting to see what Major League Baseball ultimately decides to do with the draft. If you look at the two big things that are going to impact college baseball next season, this was part one. Part one was will you give the guys the year back, and will it be a blanket waiver or just to the seniors? They did that, and they went with the blanket waiver. Now, the next question is, what will MLB do? Or will they go with a five-round draft? Will they go with a 10-round draft? Because that could push more of these guys who might have had a major league option available in a full draft context back to a four-year college.
0: And what makes it interesting, too, Charlie, undrafted free agents can only max out at $20,000. And so some, you may have some guy says, hey, I'm ready to go anyway. I'm, I'm done with school. I'm sick and tired of getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning and, and going to mandatory weights. But at the end of the day, if he doesn't make that top five rounds, it's $20,000 max. And so all of a sudden you've seen some undrafted free agents in years past get some really good deals, but now all of a sudden, everything's going to be pushed back years from a year from a money standpoint.
1: And you wonder, too, though, if you are drafted in those first five rounds, if now the major league teams are going to have that much more emphasis on doing whatever they have to do to get you signed, to max out all their slot money to be sure they sign you. Because if you're taking 30 guys, if yeah. you're taking 40 guys, and you lose a kid in the fifth, yeah, who cares? But if you're only taking five, and you've only got five you can really bid on, you got the feeling that if somebody does get drafted, Major League Baseball is going to do their best to sign them.
0: You won't see many opportunities where you have a first-round guy go to school, and that's the thing that makes this year a little bit different. Or second, you're going to get a good gauge. I think, like you said, Charlie, I think Major League teams are going to really know. They are going to ask those guys up front and really know who wants to come and sign a contract and who has a chance to go to college. Now, another caveat that opens up is, say I am a high school senior, and I know there's going to be five rounds. You do have the junior college option, and you do see more teams and more players beginning to use that option now. We saw it a couple of times last year, high drafts going to junior college route and then coming back to the draft next year because they are draft eligible after that first year, that freshman year, if you go the JUCO route.
1: It's going to be really interesting to sit back a year from now and to say who are the winners and losers in terms of institutions from this. Winners are obviously going to be the athletes. I think there's a decent chance. We're going to look back, though, and say that the quality of junior college baseball improved because a lot of guys who might have gone the 6th, 7th, or 8th are now going to be going to play junior college baseball. And I think we've got a real chance to say that mid-majors, oh yes. the non-Power 5, because here's what happens. This gives people eligibility. It does not give them necessarily a roster spot. And Meaning you're going to have still – coaches are still going to want to limit their rosters by something. They're not going to want 40 guys on the bench. So there's going to be guys who might have been on the Mississippi State roster, the Ole Miss roster, that aren't going to have a spot. And now, all of a sudden, do they go to a UAB? Do they go to a Samford? And what does that do to the trickle down? I'll tell you this. Here's the one thing I feel certain. Those midweek games are going to be a lot tougher because if you look at the non-Power 5 schools – they have a much higher percentage of seniors who are getting significant scholarship money, and they're going to have them back for another year, plus everything that was coming in, plus I think you're going to see some guys transferring out and moving down to those smaller schools. I think Wednesdays next year are going to be really exciting.
0: Mississippi has come out, uh, the governor has said, and we, we, we stay away from politics in the show. We're apolitical completely. Shelter in place now going forward, what that means for us is we will not do our weekly Facebook live like we normally do in the middle of the week and then we upload the podcast and of course go to WFCA on Thursday nights at 6 o'clock and boy, we really appreciate their friendship and, and their partnership in this deal at WFCA and so make sure at this time you follow the letter of the law and because the, one of the things Charlie that I've noticed over the last couple of weeks, it's been a tough time for everyone, but It seems like most people get along well because they understand the situation at hand. And so just we ask you to do this. Just please keep in mind when you start talking about law enforcement and talking about the people in leadership positions, just make sure that you understand this is a tough time for everyone. So be a little bit nicer over the next couple of weeks because that's what we're going to do as well.
1: Even to Jason Crowder.
0: Even to Jason Crowder. When we come back, we'll talk with Barry Winford, who played at Mississippi State from 1986 to 1989. He was a catcher on those ball clubs at Mississippi State and really one of the vocal leaders of Mississippi State during the late 1980s. We'll have that interview when we come back. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Now, welcome back to Out of Left Field. Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield. Appreciate you hanging out with us today. Brought to you by Farm Bureau. And let's go to the guest line by Barry Winford, who played at Mississippi State 1986-1989. The pride of Woodland Hills Baptist Academy down on Interstate 55. Barry, appreciate you joining us.
2: Yeah, good to uh, good to be with you guys. Hope everybody's doing well.
0: Barry I look back at 1986 to 1989 and you look at the mass of talent on campus at that time and so many people will tell you during that time frame, 87, 88, 89, you may have had as deep of a talented roster as any time in Mississippi State history. And hey, Charlie and I both know how baseball guys are when you look around the locker room, you see a bunch of guys who are very talented and have very big egos. I've been told by more than one person that you were kind of the glue to that team. How hard was it getting everyone to pull in the same direction when you've got so many big egos sitting in that locker room?
2: You know, I don't know if there's anything that was uh, uh, overly specific about how that team pulled together, but we came out of, of course coming out of 85, that was a, a very special group of guys, and then you know, '86. Uh, we had a lot of guys that played on that team, and they saw how that '85 team did things. And then, of course, that just picked up the recruiting. And you know, I can remember when uh, Pete Young and Richie Graham came on their recruiting visits. It just it was an easy the way that team meshed together. The chemistry we had in the locker room. There was a lot of back and forth, uh, just banter with each other. No one took it too serious. You know, for example, we still have a chat room that guys from 86 and 89 were on that little chat room, and we're on it constantly, uh, still taking digs at each other. It was just a, a, a unique group of guys that uh, had great chemistry. And, of course, you know, look, Coach Polk had his personality. He was not overbearing, and then but you then you had, you know, Pat McMahon that was kind of the, a little bit of the enforcer. We had great coaches that, you will know, let each team kind of develop its own personality, and I think that's what made those teams successful.
1: Barry, when we look back at your career, one of the things that I will always remember is the line drive to right field that drove in Brad Hildreth that won that first game in the SEC tournament in '87, a, a tournament we arguably uh, were lucky to be in. And then obviously, uh, I think about the '89 the season. And, and one of the things Bar and I talked about, the fact that you had 40 stolen bases in your career as a catcher. When you look back on your career, what what is that point of pride? What's that thing that kind of sticks out to you as one of your biggest memories
2: well of course that uh, 87 uh, that 87 team that was a uh, again a team that I think, I think we won 15 games in a row and then if you'll remember Nelson Ariete caught a line drive off the face against uh, Mississippi College and of course he was having a phenomenal year uh, he was kind of the eighth of that staff and then the very next night I get run over at home plate get a broken jaw and a Subdural hematoma, so back to back nights that you know both of us got put out of uh, commission for uh, for quite a while and and. Um Uh, The team kind of, not because we were out, but we kind of started struggling a little bit. I can remember we went into the second to last weekend series um, against Kentucky, and we struggled against Kentucky. It's the first time I saw Coach Spoke literally show anger. That was a long bus drive home. When we got home, he stood up in the front of the bus. He said, if I see anybody on this field the rest of the week, you're off the team. So we didn't even practice that week before we went to play Alabama. Uh, We swept Alabama, got into the SEC tournament, and then obviously had an incredible uh, tournament run. And opening up against uh, really probably the number one team in the country, Derek Lilliquist and Chris Carpenter on the mound, and to win that first game. Of course, I was wearing a looked like a football helmet to protect my jaw, and um, you know to get that to get that base hit, and uh, for us to win that first one. And of course, there was a lot of heroes during that uh, you know during that tournament. Jody Hurst had a, a phenomenal tournament, uh, but yeah, it's hard not to look back at that '87 team and how we had that good magical run, and and then coming back on the bus when we got to the state line. People lined up uh, all the way to Starville. That's a a memory I'll never forget.
0: Talking to Barry Winford, played at Mississippi State 1986 to 1989, catcher on those ball clubs. And Barry, when I think of those those pitching staffs from that time frame, the thing about baseball, it's amazing. You, you talk to baseball guys, they have the memories. You talk about not practicing at all that week of that Alabama series. That's the first time I've heard that. But I can guarantee you, you could tell me right now, if you had a runner at third base and one out, and you had to have a strikeout, and you had Bobby Reed on the mound, what are you throwing?
2: Well, Bobby had a, uh, a phenomenal sinking fastball because uh, he got a lot of ground balls. Uh, he had a kind of a cut fastball, a semi-slider. Bobby probably didn't get the credit that uh, he deserves. Bobby was uh, probably one of the best all-around pitchers ever come through that program, and you know, Bobby is a uh, you know, Bobby got drafted by the uh, Rangers, and uh, I did too, and uh, I actually got to catch him in the minor leagues a little bit, so that was a uh, that was kind of a unique deal for us. But but Bobby Reed just had a he didn't walk a lot of guys. He would put it in the strike zone. It's amazing how many guys that did ground balls. But, yeah, I would either throw his sinking fastball or uh, his cut fastball slider in that situation.
0: And the thing about being a catcher, too, is you have to be part psychologist because you look at a Bobby Reed who was very deliberate on the mound, and then all of a sudden you think of a guy coming on the back end like Pete Young. And then you had Tracy Jones with that good hard-breaking ball. What was it like kind of being the psychiatrist with different – Styles of guys out on the mound because they pitch so many different ways.
2: Well, no, no question, the catcher has to be a, a little bit of a psychologist. You need to you you need to know the personalities of those pitchers, and sometimes you have to go out there and you have to you know pat them on the back. You may have to go out and tell a joke. Or you may have to get in somebody's kitchen one thing about most of those guys they were so so top-notch competitors that uh it didn't you didn't have to get in their kitchen they those are the guys that uh they were tougher on themselves but some guys you would have to go out there and kind of get them to to relax a little bit now Pete Young that's a whole different story Uh, (laughs) uh, you just you just want to make sure that Pete didn't put in somebody's ear we were playing Auburn And Pete came in, and the first guy he's going to face is uh, Frank Thomas. Well, Frank decided while Pete's doing his warm-up pitches that he would take a knee as close to the batter's box as he could. And I'm looking at Pete going, oh he's gonna throw one at him so i ran out and i said pete please do not throw one at him i said i can't tackle that guy you'd be <laughs> on your own uh, but uh yeah pete was uh, all those guys but pete was a unique uh unique guy and uh when when you got the ball in Pete's hand, you felt like you had a chance to win the game
1: very unfortunately we all grow up and uh, get too old to play baseball you've become a a banker now priority one bank and there's obviously some uncertain times in baseball games along the way but uncertain time in the economy right now one of the things that bart and i hear all the time now is hey there are new programs there are new loan packages new government programs for people to take advantage of and everybody says what do i do who do i talk to what does somebody do if they've got a small business where do they go in this time
2: Well, SBA, as we're speaking here, I just got uh, the latest guidelines from the Small Business Administration. We are going, all banks in the country are going to step into the skews of SBA, and we're actually going to be, by default, the SBA lender. So any small business out there right now, there's a a paycheck protection plan that's come out that will allow any small business to apply. Uh, They can come directly to their uh, their bank, and uh, they can apply for a loan and I'm going to call it a loan initially because that's the way it will be, that will allow them to keep people on the payroll for the next eight weeks. At the end of that eight weeks, uh, if certain criteria met, met, then the loan will be forgiven, debt-free and uh, tax-free. So that's a uh, it's a great way for small businesses to get access to money. It looks like April 3rd, which will be this Friday, is when uh, people will be able to again make those applications and uh, get in the pipeline to get, billion that's been put into this program.
0: Barry, we appreciate you joining us, man. It was great to talk with you.
2: Thank you, guys. Y'all take care.
0: Well, thanks, Barry. Good stuff. And when we come back, we'll take a look back at Bulldog History, brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Well, we hope you enjoyed that conversation with former Bulldog Barry Winford. Bulldog legend. i tell you what. There's a guy that if I had to have an enforcer with me, if I had to have a catcher and I wanted to throw at a guy, and you, and you heard him talk just a moment ago about Pete Young throwing at Frank Thomas <laughs> or wanting to throw at Frank Thomas, Barry's the guy I would want with me. But i tell you what, man. Could you imagine Pete Young and uh, – and Frank Thomas going head-to-head Boy, on the mail. We'd it, still be talking about that.
1: It would be like the Ventura-Ryan altercation. <laughs> it would still be going on.
0: <laughs> All right, Charlie, take a look back segment brought to you by our friends at Country Pleasing Sausage. Well, Country Pleasing still rocking on along down there, and uh, Henry Cooper and the gang trying to keep the grocery stores full right now of some of that great jalapeno cheddar, the and Dewey, just the regular, that original country-pleasing sausage. And uh, go by and check them out, and they'll bring it to the door right now for you uh, down in Florence on Highway 49. Country-pleasing sausage and our look back tonight. Charlie, let's do something a little bit different. We, We looked back last week at the 2012 run of the SEC tournament and the championship that the Bulldogs went through in that 2012 season. Here's what I'd like to talk about tonight. Let's think about a position, just one position. Let's start with shortstop, okay? Back when we had our draft in our first two shows, one of the things that I looked at, and it was really crazy to see about, you start thinking about all these great shortstops that Mississippi State has had from 1977 on. Here's the first question I got for you. Since 1977, how many four-year shortstops As Mississippi State had?
1: All right, so two come to mind. Okay. And the first I remember well because he came in right off the heels of the 1985 season, and that was Brad Hildreth. You're right. Hildreth was a guy who was drafted pretty high and instead came to school and started for four years for Mississippi State and was kind of there through that late 80s, kind of that 87, 88, 89 period. The only other that – I can think of was Maniscalco. That's
0: correct. You got the both of them. Uh, there you go. You had uh, Brad Hildreth, eighty six to eighty nine, same exact time as Barry Winford, and then in two thousand to two thousand three, Matthew Maniscalco. Of course, uh, Matthew from Oxford, Alabama.
1: Brad Hildreth was from Brad Hildreth was from Mobile, Alabama, the Mobile area. That is correct. Because he played at UMS Prep, I believe it was. All right, so let's look back at these Bulldogs shortstops.
0: Okay, here's the things I wrote. This is a little bit before my time. First of all, who's the first guy you really remember?
1: Dirk Dierkalay? Yeah, Steve. So if you go back, I should remember Boyd Connor in 79, but I don't have a great memory of him. But hitting that 80 81 period, Dierkalay was one. How can you forget the name Dierkalay? It was a great baseball name, but that's Steve Dirkulay, the first one that I really remember.
0: Okay, so you had Dirkulay, you had Mike Smith in 77 and 78, boy Connor, as you said, in 1979. Dan Zelmer played at shortstop in 1982. Now, Dan moved around later in his career. Then in 83, 84, here's the first guy I remember, 1984, Bobby Parker. Bobby Parker was a really good defensive shortstop, and some of the yeah, you know, more seasoned. I don't want to say the old guys. Some of the more seasoned guys will tell you that Bobby
1: Parker may have been the best defensive shortstop we've ever had. And you know who hurts Bobby Parker's standing in terms of if you pick up the stat books more than anybody, the official scorer. Yes, yeah. And so look, there have been periods of time in college baseball at Duty Noble Field <laughs> where some scores are more have been more generous than others. Yeah. That Some is correct or quicker to call it a hit than an error. Bobby Parker played in an era where they did in an era where they did not mind assigning you with an error. <laughs> so what you're trying to say is there's a lot of pencil whipping going on in, in, in recent times. I'm not casting aspersions on anyone. I'm merely saying that Bobby Parker played in a different era.
0: What you're trying to say is if you play golf for the official score, you want him on your team because he would pencil whip anybody in a tournament.
1: I'll just say this, uh, the official score of more recent years keeps score a lot like I keep my score on the golf course.
0: Well, it's like Jackie Sherrill. When you play golf ch- with Jackie Sherrill in a tournament, the only rule is there are no rules. Okay, Bobby Parker, then in 1985, of course, Frank Davis. Was All the tournament, tournament
1: team in the College World Series, by yep. the way.
0: Frank Davis in 1985, and then in 85, 80, uh, excuse me, 86, 87, 88, 89, Brad Hildreth took over at short for Mississippi State, had a great arm. Had that really good, good arm, and at the end of the day was a very high-end type of player, but really made a lot of great
1: plays. He did, and like I said, Hildreth, one of those guys that I remember, just an absolute cannon of an arm. After Hildreth, I believe, well, I don't, I'm going to take off the qualifier. I know for a fact the guy that took over for Hildreth in 90 was John Shave. Yep, John Shave was the second baseman in 1989. It moved from second over to short. You know, if you go back, Shave, in many ways, almost all the shortstops that we could name were either a couple of year starters who came in or were guys who fit the mold of John Shave, guys who played some second base, guys who played some shortstop, or played some third, and moved around, and then later in their career settled in at the position. Shave was a guy who was perfectly qualified to be your starting shortstop to get the day he got here. But if you go back to the late 80s, we had a heavy bench. Yeah. And you just had to wait your turn. Shave, a guy who played in the major leagues, but just had to wait his turn. Not, that was nineteen ninety nineteen ninety one
0: 1991 was an, another one-year guy. You remember him?
1: That was – Jeff Mackin in Mackin.
0: Well, Brad Burkell played some at short as well, but I think Mackin got most of the starts at shortstop that year. That was in 1991. 92-93, Paul Petrulus. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: Paul Petrulus was the guy who you almost secretly cheered now and then when the game was in hand to strike out. <laughs> right? John Cohen had a little of this in him too. Let's just be fair about it, okay? But if you think about – if I took John Cohen and Paul Petrulus, I have never met or watched play two individuals who hated striking out worse than they did.
0: Hey, and Buck Showalter t- touched on this a couple of weeks ago about how a lot of guys today don't care about the strikeout, but Paul Petrulus and John Cohen, they cared about it. Buck
1: Showalter would love Petrulus <laughs> and Cohen because, you know, the deal, now Cohen was more of a slam slam the bat in the rack, you know, kind of get a little upset. Petrulus, back in those days, behind the, the dugout, there was a long tunnel headed back right. to the locker room, and there were some metal lockers set up at the far end. And what you would hear after you would hear this screaming was balls just banging off those <laughs> aluminum lockers, those metal lockers back in the in the tunnel. He would absolutely lose his mind. But you know what? Patrullus, we talk about that, though. Petrulus was a slick fielder now. Yeah. He could go get it and he could make some plays.
0: Petrullis and Jeff Mackin came back and played at, uh, short in 1994. You know, Mackin was a guy that kind of moved around a little bit too. Then in 95, you know, when you start thinking about Adam Pyatt, you think of Adam Pyatt, the third baseman. But then in 1995 and 1996, Pyatt was your shortstop. Yeah, the guy that kind of filled out and moved over, I guess. And then at 96, Freeman moved over just a little bit. I think he played half the games at, at shortstop in 1996. You know, Freeman, Didn't Freeman play some second base before he went over to short?
1: Yeah, Freeman was heavy-duty second base early in his career. And then kind of he, – he, again, kind of that classic mold, he, going back to the John Shave type approach, right? A guy – when Freeman showed up here, you knew he was a special player and was just going to have to be on the field. Yeah. And he played a lot of second base – And he was a guy who got better as a hitter every year that he played and then had that run as your starting shortstop. Yeah, he was a starter in 97, 98,
0: those College World Series seasons. And then in 99, we had a freshman. But then you realized, hey, you may have to have him in other places, and that was Travis Chapman. You know, Chapman played. He was another one of those guys. Chapman played short, third, second. He just moved around, but he had that starting season season in 1999, actually, he wasn't a freshman. In 99, he he, he made the st- the move over to uh to shortstop, but he he was a player in
1: what 98, 99, and 2000. Yeah, so Chapman actually backed up a couple of years at short when Freeman was there and got some spot starts, and then then moved over. Then you hit. Then you hit Mattiscalco. Yeah, Maniscalco
0: comes in in 2000, and and in, in the 2000 season, that's when Chapman moves over to third and Maniscalco was that mainstay at shortstop from 2000 to 2003. The thing that people remember about Maniscalco, one, was his range, but the thing that I'll always remember about Maniscalco is his ability to go in the six hole and to plant his right foot, and he had an absolute cannon. He wasn't a huge guy. He wasn't a big guy, but he could make the long throw, which a lot of
1: guys have a tough
0: time making
1: deep in the six
0: hole making that throw.
1: It's interesting, if you look back in college baseball, you've got some different types of guys who played shortstop. Sometimes it goes back to this idea of kind of little league baseball. Sometimes it's just your best defender, your best fielder. May not have great range, but if he gets to it, he's going to make the play and throw somebody out. Maniscalco defensively was big league. You, you were as good at that position defensively as you will ever be or ever have been. When Maniscalco was playing it. Then in
0: 2004, you had a guy who was a part of some of those early teams. You talk about moving around, Steve Gendron played a lot at third, had to move Gendron to short in 2004. And, you know, Steve was a high school draft and came in here and really kind of materialized into a guy on that left side of the infield that was very, very steady.
1: You know, it's interesting because I will always think of Travis Chapman as a third baseman. I can barely remember him playing shortstop other than I know he did. And it's kind of similar with Gendron, right? Just for some reason in my mind, he's a third baseman. But he did have that year there. That's right.
0: Then in 2005, we had what we thought was going to be a four-year run of a starting shortstop in Bunky Caton. You know, Bunky came here. He had split time with Michael Rutledge and uh, the brother-in-law of Laura Rutledge of the SEC Network. Didn't know that. Yeah. Michael's brother played at Alabama, married Laura. There's a little tidbit. But then uh, 2005, things didn't work out for Bunky. Thomas Burkery, who was that Swiss Army knife in the infield, Burkery started in 2006 at shortstop. What He he started four different positions in four years, but that was his turn at shortstop was in
1: 2006. How many guys have started at catcher and shortstop? (laughs) There aren't many. (laughs) Not in the college game. 2007, the
0: College World Series season, Jet Butler played at short. And
1: And Jet made that. So, in the Clemson Super Regional here, Jet made that great catch running out behind third base. That ball kind of hit out in no man's land, able to hang on and secure a win for us.
0: And then in 2008, we kind of had just a group of guys that played it short. You had Jet Butler who played some at short. They moved him some to second base Ryan Powers played some shortstop. Russ Sneed. I, mean, I always think of Russ Sneed as another a third guy, baseman.
1: Yeah, another guy I think about playing third.
0: And so Russ played a little bit of short as well. Then in 2009, Ryan Powers started 40 games. Frankie Rawdow. Remember Frankie Rawdow? Oh, yeah. Came in. Russ McNichol was the uh, assistant coach. I think he went with Russ to yeah, St. Like Leo. St. Leo down yeah, in Florida. Sure down did. in Florida. And then in 2010, when when you started seeing that, that uptick in the second year of John Cohen in 2010, one of the guys I look back that that really transformed that infield was Jonathan Ogden.
1: Remember Oggy? Yeah. You know what? If we were to going to go back and look at the run Mississippi State made in the the teens, what do we call that after twenty ten? Yeah. Um, he is. He's probably one of the guys that we ought to give more credit to as we look back because he was a really good. Really good player for Mississippi State.
0: Especially in 2011, when that was the year we went to the Super Regional played it then wow. in Gainesville against Florida. Yeah, so close. And then in 2012, 2013, of course, Adam Frazier. Frazier started at second base in 2011 when Aggie was at short. So Frazier moves from second to short, 12 and 13, was solid over there. And then in 14, Seth Heck comes in. You remember we played – Oregon State in the College World Series twice. Seth Heck was a junior college transfer. He was a sophomore at the time, and it came down between Mississippi State and Oregon State. He was from Washington, Yeah, he was from Washington. And a lot of folks thought he was going to Oregon State. He came to State – and was the starting shortstop in 2014. And then in 15, something was crazy happened. He had a slow start to the season. He and Gridley, Gridley was the second baseman, and they flipped early in the season. So Heck went to second, Gridley went to short, and Ryan Gridley began a three-year run as the shortstop in 15,
1: 16, and 17. Gridley, one of those guys you have to love because he played – in boxing, they would say that somebody punches above their weight class – Gridley played above his weight class. He wasn't a big guy, but that guy was made out of springs or something. It was phenomenal. He he got every ounce of his body into his swings.
0: And then in 2018, Luke Alexander, who played some different positions, moved to short. That was his natural position. Had walked to beat, it off against Ole Miss. Walked it off against Ole Miss in that Sunday ball game, that marathon game. And then 2019, it became the Jordan Westberg show. Westberg this past season as well. And hopefully we'll see Jordan Westberg again next season. So that's a look back at the Bulldogs shortstops. It's kind of great to start looking at some of these names that you haven't thought about in a while. So that's kind of a look back at the Bulldogs shortstops. Uh, Since 1977. So Charlie. We've had a great show this week. Up next. Going to have a chance to talk to kyle peterson we'll ask him some questions as well about the this division one council meeting and uh, some of the great things that are going on with college baseball right now as far as that the ruling that was made to allow everyone to get that extra year of eligibility and of course that was our look back segment brought to you by country pleasing sausage back with a talk with kyle peterson you're listening to out of left field presented by farm bureau And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. It's time now for our Heartland Guest Line segment, brought to you each week by our good friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland continues to produce quality American-raised catfish, and this week we highlight one of the only reasons we go to the Oxford area. Well, I'm joking, of course. Maybe. And that's Taylor Grocery. At Taylor Grocery, you can get the whole catfish or the catfish fillets, and right now they're offering their curbside service. So call in and place your order today at 662-236-1716. That's 662-236-1716. 1716 and get some great heartland catfish from the place that southern living rates as the top catfish joint in the south that's taylor grocery kyle peterson joins us uh, espn analyst and kyle i tell you what we we like to talk about the big bad ncaa a lot especially in the sport of college baseball and it's kind of uh very popular with a lot of writers and and tv analysts to talk about the ncaa but at ten thousand feet what they did on Monday with allowing everyone to get that extra year, it appears as, as if they got it right.
3: Uh, yeah, I think they absolutely got it right. I, I don't, I was surprised. I, I thought best case scenario, they'd give eligibility back to seniors, which um, would have created a, a number of issues from that, just as far as leverage with juniors. And this to me was, was the right way to do it. Um, but fully acknowledging that it's also the most expensive way to do it, and I think that's going to be that's going to be the I don't know kind of the devil in the details as we move forward on this thing is uh, who can actually do it and who can pay for it. I mean, you know, if you fast forward to next year, I don't know that anybody has a great read just as far as as what the financial situation of athletic departments and universities and everything is going to be. We're all, we're all trying to figure out what it looks like next week, but at least to give everyone the freedom. To do this if uh if if they are so inclined i think it's 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 a really good move by the ncaa as far as protecting the kids because this is the best way to protect the kids
1: kyle down at mississippi state one of the great curse words is 11.7 the idea that you have this limitation on college baseball scholarships is there a chance that maybe a positive to come from all of this is some of these athletic departments get used to paying a little bit more for college baseball and maybe get some movement in terms of scholarship flexibility moving forward?
3: There's a chance. I don't. I, I wouldn't, and this is without really talking to anybody about it beyond what we've all read. Um, I, I don't know that I would put it as a high probability right now. Um, you know, they reacted to a situation that hopefully is a once-in-a-lifetime event. And in doing so, I think the reaction should be seen as that as well and not necessarily anything that is going to be ongoing. We would all like more scholarships. Uh, I don't know if now is the right time to be asking for that moving forward. I think it's it's more, let's get through next year and then figure out. And, you know, this is not a one-year deal when it comes to, to college baseball. I mean, it's going to take a few years for all of this to filter through the system, especially with the draft limitation, limitations in place for the next few years. And I would think moving forward I'd be surprised if the draft is ever a 40-year 40-round uh, draft again but so you figure all those things in we, we needed one year or two year flexibility on this whether it leads to longer term I, I don't I'm not extremely hopeful of that right now but who knows we were we were surprised earlier this week so maybe we'll get surprised again
0: talking with Kyle Peterson with ESPN and Kyle just about the overall health of the game from a standpoint of we think about Uh, Think about an Alabama who has nine seniors on this year's roster. A Samford who is over in Birmingham has eight. You look at TCU, a a lot of seniors coming back. What's going to have the bigger impact? Is it going to be seniors coming back or that shortened Major League Baseball draft? Because let me tell you something, everything's about to ratchet up a notch over the next couple of years as far as the product.
3: It absolutely is. I totally agree. I mean, what will be lost this year is what's lost every year, and that's the, the absolute top end talent be they juniors or seniors or, or high school seniors, regardless. You know, the draft process still is going to work for that, for that group. W- where, it's, where it's not going to work or where it's going to change uh, is among those that don't go in the first five rounds or ten rounds, whatever the draft ends up being. I don't think there's an absolute on that yet, but it should be somewhere between those, those frames. And a $20,000 limit on free agents is going to massively reduce the number of free agents that sign for twenty grand. when you know you can come back and play. Uh, it's different before when you're a senior and you don't have any other opportunity. If you're a free agent, well, of course you're going to sign at that point because you can't go back to school. In this case, you can go back to school. To, to some extent, everybody has leverage, which has never been the case. Uh, but there's leverage with limitations on the other side, which I think has to be expected in this case. So, yeah, I think our talent level is – is going to go up pretty significantly, uh, and ultimately, it's um, it's probably going to be a net positive for the game. But it's going to come with some pretty significant headaches. I mean, you know, the just handling rosters for college coaches over the next few years, as if it wasn't difficult before, is going to get significantly more difficult now. But uh, they should have a, for the most part, an, an overall talent level that, that will go up in the meantime.
1: Kyle, one of the things that we're sometimes guilty of as baseball fans as we think about major leagues, we think about college, but sometimes forget about all those players toiling away in the minor leagues. There's been some discussion even before all this about perhaps contracting the minor league system. What do you see this doing to the, to the health of minor league baseball?
3: Well, I don't know that we know yet. I mean, obviously the reports are out there that that contraction was was on the table and i just if you read the tea leaves if you have a draft between five and ten rounds and a limited free agent signing after that at least you would think it's fairly limited based on what the number is there's not going to be, be as many guys so it, it it at least on the surface is easier to make the argument for contraction at minor league teams uh, because you don't just have a glut of players that you had in the past now, whether that is, is just kind of a, a circumstance that comes about because of a limited draft or whether there was intent behind it, I, I have no idea. But I know that it definitely makes the argument, um, it makes it a lot more understandable at this point if they're going to go do it. I, I haven't I haven't seen an update as far as where that process stands right now. I do know, at least it's seen publicly, that the owners were, were pretty bent on doing that, and the, the, the draft limitations this year would, would definitely not lead you to believe otherwise
0: talk with Kyle Peterson of ESPN and Kyle you played in the Cape Cod League and how many times do you see or hear during a season about a guy going off to summer ball and trying to figure some things out he may tinker with his motion as far as a pitcher he may uh, get some kind of tip at the plate how will losing the summer league ball hurt not only when you start looking at the economic hurt in the Cape Cod league that area but also just the player development side of losing summer league ball
3: well I haven't seen that it's gone yet and maybe it is maybe you guys have seen it and I haven't seen it to this point so you know is there a way to shorten the season into four weeks can you start in I don't know the middle of July and then the middle of August I have no idea I don't even know if that's you know from a pure health standpoint if it's going to be feasible or from a time frame standpoint if it works for any of the leagues but yeah I mean developmentally to some extent, guys are left on their own for, for a very extended period of time. And you may be left on your loan with with very limited resources to, to actually go out and work on things. So um, I think it goes at all levels. I mean, it goes to the professional level and obviously to the college level. I mean, think of the guys that signed last year, and you go to short season ball and you play whatever, 45 games. And maybe go to extended, maybe don't go to extended. The minor league guys never really got to spring training this year. If they did, it was it was very, very short. And then they're not going to have much of a season. Think of the Mangum's of the world right now. Uh, they got into a system last year, but but you know at this point, well, Jake could probably be breaking camp about right now, figuring out where whether he was going to go to high A or low A or wherever that was going to take him around the country. Um, so that development process when guys get into pro Bowl, is going to get stunted as well because you can't you can't be out in the monks. Everybody's in the same boat, obviously, um, but it's it's going to uh, it's going to push a time frame back for for a lot of the guys that are in the system.
1: Cal, you're an Omaha guy, and obviously those uh, that word Omaha means so much to college baseball. What is the absence of the idea of having a College World Series this year? What's the
3: impact of that locally there with your community? That's huge. It's huge. I mean, I saw a number the other day that just the, the overall economic impact, and it's, it's not just from the College World Series, but – you got to remember, you've got college world series. Uh, the draft was supposed to be in Omaha. The Olympic swim trials were supposed to be in Omaha, with some overlap with the college world series this year. And then the the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting every year is a huge event in Omaha that brings people in from all over the world. None of those are going to take place. I mean, the overall economic impact to Omaha is somewhere in the neighborhood of three or four hundred million dollars this year. So, you know, you don't get it back in a year. The, the beauty of it is, is all of those things should return oh and the other thing is the the ncaa basketball regionals were supposed to be here as well so you throw that into the mix um but you deal with what you can deal with and at this point thankfully you know it looks like we should have a college world series next year i would hope the major league baseball it's bringing the draft back to omaha uh if not next year in the very near future it looks like the swim trials are going to be here next year and obviously the berkshire meeting will continue so uh, it's it's a kick. Everybody's having a kick right now. It depends on what it is. I mean, you know, you guys would be getting getting ready for a weekend series somewhere, and they'd be loading into Duty Noble here. I know I was supposed to do Ole Miss, Mississippi State at, at some point. I don't remember when that was, but but that was on my preliminary schedule. Uh, so we're all going to feel it in in some way. It's just you know, hopefully we can all be smart and safe and fast forward to stability in this thing as soon as we can get there. So then we can get back to normalcy, whatever normalcy looks like, but we can get back to normalcy as quickly as possible.
1: Kyle, one more question for you, just kind of about the state of college baseball. You know, growing up in Mississippi, we sometimes think of baseball being a province of the southeast and the west coast. We think about Stanford and we think about LSU, Mississippi State, and things like that. Michigan obviously has had some success lately, seeing more teams outside those regions. How important is it for the game that, programs like michigan continue to develop
3: the way they have huge i mean michigan nebraska wichita state remember years ago wichita state was in that conversation all the time oh yeah Um, and to me the the game is at its best when you have a few things you've got some blue bloods that are always going to be blue bloods it's lsu mississippi state texas uh it would be great if usc could return to that equation because they haven't they haven't been on that stage in a long time Um, And there's others. I mean, I'm not intentionally leaving anybody out, but a blue blood component of it is massively important because of the fan base that comes with it and the history that comes with it. But the real growth, if you look at it across the country, is going to be the Michigans, is going to be the Nebraskas, is going to be the, you know, Stony Brook, Coastal Carolina type stories that hopefully build a program and not necessarily build a year. Um, It's Duke, it's Virginia, it's Rice, it's places that It's Vanderbilt I mean, 15 years ago, nobody looked at Vanderbilt as a baseball school. I can promise you that. We were talking to Corpse in the offseason just about the job and the opportunity when he got there, and he started laughing. He said, hey, it was me and the janitor that signed up for for the, the job application. That was it. Like, there, It wasn't like anybody was running to get the Vanderbilt job at that point. Well, they'd be running to get it now. I can promise you that. So it's it's not necessarily the only the Michigans. I mean, a lot of times it's those in – in major conferences that haven't made the jump i think duke is is the next one that they can absolutely do that when you look at what they've done recently and as that grows then it just lifts the entire product up across the country so it's better for all of us
0: kyle we appreciate it good stuff as always
3: all right gentle hope we're talking baseball again soon
0: and that's it for another week of out of left field presented by farm bureau go to favorites.com and get your insurance quote today farm bureau go with the home team well, for Charlie Winfield, I'm Bark Gregory. Thanks for listening to Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau.